Oh, and welcome to another edition of the Metrospective, episode number 65, Pete McCarthy with Tim Britton. It is uh, 65, as I mentioned, Tim, the only player in Mets history to wear number 65, Robert Gesellman. So we've bestowed upon him the honor of having the uh, the podcast named for one uh, Robert Gesellman. How are you, Tim? Everything good? Surviving and thriving, despite being in the same apartment for weeks on end. That, that's what it's all about. Just the beginning. Uh, don't you worry, Tim. Uh, and we have a, a special guest that I'm very excited. Uh, Jerry Blevins, of course, spent four years with the Mets uh, from 2015 to 2018. Once had an RBI single with the Mets. You remember this lefty. And uh, Jerry, we're very happy to have you on board. How does it feel to be on the, the Robert Kesselman edition of the Metrospective? <laughs> I, I, I'm honored to be on the show, and then knowing it's the Gazelman makes it even more special for me. So, uh, you know, I got to see that guy on his debut come in, you know, I think it was the first inning and just dominate. So what, a, what an honor. <laughs> There you go. It's perfect. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons we want to have you on, Jerry, we'll, we'll get to some of the memories of your time with the Mets and uh, the trip to the World Series in 2015 and the playoffs in 2016. But, I mean, just initially – what is this like for the players in this situation waiting for this season to start up again as the country deals with this global pandemic? And uh, I'm sure there's some uncertainty as to whether or not there will be a, a season at all. How, how do you describe what the last couple of weeks have been like? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, we're just trying to make sure that our families and friends are, are safe Um you know, and trying to make sure that we're doing the right things for, for our communities, for the cities that we play in, the cities that we had spring training. Uh, you know, the first and foremost, this is a, a global pandemic that we're just, you know, we're trying to make sure that, that baseball's into perspective. And, uh, you know, as much as we want to play and, and we want to uh, put on a, a show for the, for the fans, we want to make sure that everybody's doing the right things to stay safe. But it, it has been pretty strange um, you know, we're, my wife and I and our two kids are, are in Arizona still, uh, I'm throwing against a wall <laughs> as my throwing partner. Um, and so, you know, we're doing our best to, to kind of stay in shape, but you know, everything's kind of put into perspective as far as, you know, just health. So we're doing our part. It's strange, but, um, I think everybody else, like you said, uh, Tim, you're, you're trapped in an apartment. So everybody's dealing with their own thing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the, the speed with which this kind of accelerated a couple weeks ago, or, you know, it was a regular Monday at spring training, and then Tuesday, baseball started to make some changes, no no media in the clubhouse, kind of essential personnel. But then by, like, Thursday, it's like, oh, yeah, you're not playing games anymore, and the season's delayed. Like, what was that like as a player to go through that week to realize, you know, early in the week, everything was normal, and then by the end of the week, it's it's a, an indefinite delay? Yeah, that was really strange. Um uh, Wednesday we had our last game and then we had an off day Thursday with the Giants uh, and then I was supposed to throw like a pin on Friday and so I came in on Wednesday and, and did a light tossing program and I was done by 9.30 and I went home and joined the off day you know on Wednesday and things are kind of crazy and then that was basically the last time that our team together was you know that Wednesday and so how quickly it went from you know we had a, a, a COVID-19 um, presentation on how to stay safe. We were talking about how to, you know, still interact with fans, but also keep the fans and yourselves safe. We were trying to do the right things. And then it just escalated, like you said, within a week, it was pretty, pretty crazy. Um, but you know, everybody's dealing with their own thing, like I said before, but, uh, and from a baseball side, it, I've never seen or heard anything like it. 
And I think the turning point for everybody is when Rudy Gobert had that positive test in the NBA. Do, do you remember that night? Also, Tom Hanks uh, announced that he was positive of coronavirus that night. That seemed to be the, the turning point for a lot of people where they realized, oh, this is going to really affect me. Yeah, like you said, I remember like watching his press conference where he kind of was joking around and went back in and touched all the microphones, just kind of like trying to make light and, and uh, you know, keep a positive, you know, focus on it and then when he tested positive everybody kind of reassessed what was going on and it was it was that moment for us it was like all right when adam silver kind of shut down the nba we're like all right so there's there's bigger things at hand let's kind of take a deep breath and, and reassess what we got to do and, and that was the launching point right there you're right you mentioned kind of throwing a ball up against a wall at this point. How, how difficult is this for pitchers in particular to start up that ramping up process through spring training, get to a point where you're only a couple of weeks away from the season, you're, you're feeling pretty good, ready to, to roll into a, a regular season, and now you've got to figure out what to do for uh, a time, like you don't know when you've got to ramp up again. It's not like a usual offseason kind of thing. How, how hard is that to figure out what exactly to do with yourself? Yeah, I mean... Um... That's kind of the reason why we've stayed in Arizona, A, because if we're trapped, there's warm weather, we can go outside in the yard for the kids uh, to kind of just be out. But mainly because I was going to throw, you know, being trapped in the winter in the off season in Ohio all the time, I got to throw indoors in, um, in at the University of Finley there. They have like a, a place to play. And so I'm throwing year round, but I don't really ramp it up up until I get to spring training because I like to get my feet in the dirt. Um, and so I was like, right, right, like one more outing away from feeling 100% ready to go and to kind of hit the reset button is pretty tough. And so I've just kind of been idling trying to keep it up. But you know, I haven't thrown off a mound, you try to do your best, but you just don't want to be around people uh, and, and put other people at risk, you know, because we're high exposure, there's a ton of people coming to the games. And so it's it's hard to to stay ready. I don't know what guys are going to do, but I'm sure they're going to give us plenty of time. You know, if and when the season starts back up. How much time do you think you would need? Me personally, I'd probably need about two weeks. Um, I I kind of I kind of always am close to being ready because I like to throw. I don't take much time off uh, in the off season, so I'm always kind of like if it's a scale of one to ten, being ten being ready. I'm always at like a four, <laughs> you know, because I, I like to throw every day. I like to keep the arm moving. And that way, you know, it's kind of just when you need to ramp it up, you're ready to go and nothing comes at you uh, like a surprise. So uh, it'll, it'll take me two weeks. I'm sure I'm sure there's guys that are going to take longer, but I'm sure their prep work now is, is kind of doing things according to, you know, how long that we would need. Tell me about this wall you're throwing against. It's not inside the house, is it? <laughs> uh, no, but it is surrounding. We, we're living in a, like a little community here in Scottsdale, and my, our yard is basically just surrounded by a wall, uh, like a brick wall. And so I just throw uh, a dog bed up against it, and I'm just hammering the dog bed. So I'm sure I'm driving my neighbors crazy, but uh, you, you do what you got to do. And they're worried, probably worried about yeah, me. Yeah, that was uh, the old uh, tennis head against ball the again. Wall, but. <laughs> The old tennis ball against the garage door growing up to, to work to work on your infield the way I did. <laughs> well, that's true. I mean, uh, uh, coming up in the lower minor leagues, I couldn't, you know, I didn't have any facilities around me that I could throw with. And so I just set up a tarp in a, my parents' garage and would just throw into that for about a half hour at a time. So this is, 
this is nice that I can be outside. So this is a step up from what I normally have. Had you, you know, before before the, the regular season was delayed the way it was, there was some talk about playing games in front of empty stadiums. Had you thought about what that might be like and how weird that would be? You know, especially as a reliever, sometimes you're you're coming in kind of building off of the adrenaline of the crowd in a big situation. How difficult would it have been to play in a, a 50,000 seat stadium, you know, three tiers with no fans there? Uh, yeah, man, that would have been strange, mostly because, uh, you, like you said, you, people thrive off that environment. It's kind of um, the best part about baseball is that, that fan interaction. You know what I mean? It doesn't feel like a job. Uh, it feels like we're going out and playing a sport and having fun and, and a kid's game. I think if they, you know, if we had to play without fans in the seats, we would definitely be willing to do that. There's no doubt about that. Um, the fans would they could watch on on the app on TV whatever it is that they, that they could do it but it would be strange um, I mean I played in some games I played in uh, in Houston after the hurricane Harvey came through and that was pretty much empty um, we did the game in Miami after Jose Fernandez passed away that was that was pretty crazy um, but you know never on a regular basis would the the stadiums be empty uh, it'd be difficult but guys you know we we would make make the best of it man. you do what you got to do we're chatting with jerry blevins uh the former mets reliever uh with the mets uh, from 2015 to 2018 so how have you been spending your time beyond throwing against the dog bed uh, on the brick wall and, and <laughs> trying to be prepared for when uh baseball comes back how would you describe what your days are like at this point oh my days are 100 percent all about fatherhood uh, and helping my wife out as much as possible. I have no idea how she did it before this because I am exhausted. Uh, we have a two-year-old or not quite two-year-old and a four-month-old. And, you know, our days are surrounded by keeping these these uh, these kids occupied. Uh, and, you know, our two-year-old was in some preschool kind of thing here in Scottsdale before uh, we stopped taking him to that. So we're trying to keep them you know, mentally stimulated. And so we're doing, you know, little chalk things and, and little games and we've got coloring books and all sorts of stuff. So I'm, I'm, I'm having fun playing with the kids every day. Uh, and I've never been more tired in my entire life. So I'll tell you that. <laughs> I know the feeling they're little monsters, Jerry, they're all over the place. You can't, you can't keep up. <laughs> I think, uh, I don't know what I'm going to do when the youngest one, uh, is mobile because I'm sprinting around constantly anyway. Uh, the other one, you know, you're just in a constant state of just saving their lives because they have no sense <laughs> of danger yet. So when there's two of them, uh, I think uh, my wife and I might just uh, might just die of, of exhaustion at some point. <laughs> yeah, when, when my brother had his second daughter, he said it, it was like going from one to ten kids <laughs> once they started being able to move around. <laughs> That's the truth. I think I, I, I tell everybody that I know that has kids or, or they have one and they're like, yeah, I'm so tired. I was like, yeah, one, you feel tired because you're already at that limit. But if you have two, you might as well have 10 because they're, you're literally just redlining it the entire time. You have no idea how you're doing it. It's just happening. And so I think, uh, I think your brother's correct in that assessment for sure. Now, to kind of pivoting now to the years you spent with the Mets, you know, 15 to 18. I think that the 2016 season certainly stands out, not just for you individually, but but the way the team kind of made that that run in the second half of the season. What was it like uh, down the stretch of that year at City Field when things just kind of clicked for you guys, especially that September uh, that you had uh, in that three-way race with, with San Francisco and St. Louis to get that wild card? 
how fun was it to be at the ballpark on a daily basis when you're on a team that's playing that well? Yeah, I mean, there's nothing like playing meaningful games in September. Uh, if you have a chance to make the playoffs, if you're pushing, in, you know, if you're already clinched and you're making your way, there's nothing like that that environment because the fans step it up a notch. Your club feels it. You're pushing all in one direction. It's the truest sense of the form of of you know just the, for the joy of the game. You're just playing to win. All egos are pushed aside. Everyone just wants a W, and uh, that's that for me. That's that's what it's all about. Trying to win a World Series, and at that point, you could actually see it. You know, you could see the finish line. Everything's in front of you, and so you know that particular team. We were really clicking, uh, like you said, in September. We were pushing for, pushing for that spot, and uh, I think you know we could have done some real damage if we got out of that that wild card game. No, there's no doubt. And I remember, hey, and the team looked like it was cooked in about mid-August, and then Johannes Cespedes came back that Sunday night in San Francisco. Noah Syndergaard threw a great game, and it was just like, boom, the team was off and running. Yeah, I mean, you know, like we saw in 2015, Cespedes coming back and is just such a boon for, for your lineup, for your organization, for the fans. I mean, the guy really is special, and, and for him to come back and, and play like he did, and like you said, Syndergaard to just pitch a pitch a gem when you need him. It, 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 everybody elevates their game, you know, at the right time, uh, and it's everybody feels it. You, you know, we did we went to the World Series in '15 and, and fell short, and we felt like we had a special team in '16 too. So we were trying to do everything we can to avenge that that loss in the World Series and kind of you know maybe almost copy what Kansas City did to us and 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 follow them and, and do the same thing and, and come up victorious at 16 and uh unfortunately we didn't do it how cool was it that year to see especially the second half of the year the, kind of the contributions you got from from guys like robert gazelman and, and seth lugo coming up tj rivera kind of you know it, it was kind of this mix of, of some veterans uh and some young guys coming up who you probably wouldn't have, have expected a whole lot of coming into the season contributing to the run the way they did yeah, I mean that's you know that's the joy of baseball. Everybody always understands like uh, the the term any given Sunday, you know anything can happen in football. But in baseball, it's different. Baseball, we play a marathon, and it's all about you know basically the whole roster. And to have guys like Gazelman and Lugo, those guys stepped up and took some really big, they took the the baseball in some really big moments and came through for us. Um, like had some stop gaps where you know they just kept it competitive. Uh, and that's what you need in baseball. You need guys to, to fill up that you haven't noticed before um, that make a splash in the big leagues and really can put their name on the board and put their stamp onto uh, what was a special season. you know. And, and those guys have stepped up, and they've been a key part of the Mets ever since. So they, they really established themselves in that season. How about you had a front row seat to watch the development of Jacob deGrom, who I, I think now it's pretty safe to say is the best pitcher in all of baseball. Uh, you, you were there for his Cy Young season in 2018. The, the fact that he wins again in, in 2019, it's not like you were far off uh, seeing some of those games within the, 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 within the division with the Braves. Uh, what, what is it that you think allowed Jacob deGrom to separate himself in, in the way that he has? I, I think it's just uh, that element of experience on top of his raw ability. You can really kind of see him – uh, at 16 was that, you know, a key season for him to be able to log a ton of innings. And he just learned more about himself, more about what it takes to pitch in the big leagues. And to me, he's hands down the best pitcher in the game right now. Um, uh, a testament to 
the ability that he has, um, just being on his team in 2018 and seeing him pitch every fifth day was like a highlight of my career because I understand how special it was then and how special he is now. And I think that 16 season, uh, you really saw him take a step forward and everybody you know that was around him knew something was special. And if you add that talent, uh, the experience and his work ethic all together, I think you're seeing, you know, what, what, you're seeing now the benefits of, of that experience. It's pretty, it's pretty impressive. It's special. And I know Mets fans uh, truly do appreciate what he brings to the table. I remember talking to you in the middle of 2018 and, and we were talking about kind of Jake's arsenal and you said he does something I don't even try to do, which is throw like front door changeups to lefties or something like that. Uh, is, is there something about like is there a is he the kind of pitcher that pitchers in particular really enjoy watching? Is there something extra that he does that that maybe the common fan doesn't realize? Like oh that's that's even more difficult than you would think. Yeah, I mean everything that he does is special. You know he doesn't just have that special fastball that you know blows people away. He's able to locate it up, down, in, out. And like I said, and I told you, yeah, I, 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 there's no way that I could throw a glove side changeup consistently. And so I don't even try it. it. I just, just, it's not in the repertoire. You know, I've had a pretty decent career in the big league level. I've played for a long time, but there's just another level. The guy's just, he's just way better than me. And it's, and it's fun to watch. And, uh, and and if you take with that, you know, the knowledge that he's gained in that time and watch him, he, he has fun. And uh, I think last year I got to really experience it in a different form. Um, I think Freddie Freeman's the best left-handed hitter, if not the best hitter in baseball outside of Mike Trout. And to watch him really step his game up when he faces DeGrom and watch DeGrom, they, they, when, you, when it's happening, you know there's two guys at the top of the game at their peak battling it out and it's such a pleasure to watch and they both elevate their their games at that point and watching jake's you know and jake and, and freddie who are friends you know just kind of nod to each other that they're both ridiculously good at baseball and they're just battling it out it's fun it's like two titans it's, it's a beautiful thing to watch you faced freddie freeman a ton over the course of your career what was it like then being in the same clubhouse with him and uh and and uh, seeing him, like you said, every day, but maybe talking about some of the battles that you guys had over the years. Yeah, Freddie's a Freddie's an interesting case because he's you know a lot of guys that I've faced in the past and and kind of faced regularly, they're not too friendly with me. Um, not not in a sense of you know because of of my job, I think they don't want to give away any secrets. But uh, Freddie's got the the right to kind of boasted above me because he's <laughs> he's had my number for the most part um and so he's you know opened up to me I'm, I'm always asking him you know how do i get you out how do people get you out and he would tell me throw like 100 miles an hour and i said uh, that's not fair because i can't do that and i've said i've seen people do it and it doesn't work anyway he goes yeah so just don't do that then so it's i always end up trying to make something up when i'm facing him anyway so if you can keep him on his toes and, and kind of pick his brain and, and get him off balance, I think that helps. And so that's what I would try to do every day. So Freeman hit you pretty good, as you mentioned, a 480 batting average. But Nick Markake is only 172. So did he just not talk to you and ignore <laughs> you all year? Uh, Nick's a man of few words anyway. I think it took him a little bit to open up to me uh, as is. I think he's the guy I faced the most in my career. Um, him and Ichiro and Freddie and, and I think even Bryce Harper are up there. 
But uh, Marcakis, uh, he would always try to like come up to me and mention that that I've done well against him. But I'm a man of, um, I guess, superstitions, and I never wanted to jinx it. And so I was like, yeah, your time's coming. Your time's coming. You got me. It's never comfortable, never comfortable. It was always one of those. And I was afraid that he might beat me up anyway. He's kind of uh, intense <laughs> and scary looking. So, uh, no, Nick's a great guy. And, and uh, it, it just takes it just, it just just takes a knowledge of somebody. Like, Freddie, I can't. I can't evaluate his swing mid at bat, and I think that's what really throws me off. And so, Marquez, I can kind of read him a little bit. Yeah, uh, how long does it take you to get a read on a, a left-handed hitter? You know, can you do that via video, or does it take you a few times against them to see? Okay, this is the way I want to go about it, and and this is how he might counteract that. Yeah, mostly it's 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 experience of of one on one. It's me versus him. Uh, even when you're watching video, most of it's like chopped up to where it's like right when the ball's being pitched and right when the swing happens and then it cuts. A lot of what I'm reading is like in between pitches. I'm I'm watching their, their body language. I'm watching where he sets up in the box. You don't really see that on video, but you can feel it, you know, in the way, you know, I try to, to, to pay attention to those kinds of things, uh, where guys move in the box, how they're feeling. Um, just their body language, and, and some people are more telling than others. Uh, I can read certain swings in and out of pitches, um, and some guys I just can't. So uh, it, it helps me because I'm, I'm able to take advantage of certain things that I think they're trying to do, uh, and that's definitely you know kind of kept me around baseball is, is being able to read, read swings. What's your feel for how the Blevins rule is going to affect things this year where you come out of the pen, you either got to get out of the inning or face a minimum of three batters? Yeah, uh, it's interesting. You know, I think uh, – I don't know if Manfred's personally mad at me, but um, <laughs> it feels like he's he's got a vendetta. You know, there was there – was, on top of the three-batter minimum, there was talk of uh, only being able to pick off to a base if you disengage from the rubber – so, you know, a left-handed pickoff move to first base would basically be eliminated. Um, so I feel personally attacked. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, apart from it being, you know, a lefty specialist kind of uh, rule, like obviously that's, that's what the rules goes against, I just feel like uh, you're taking decisions out of a manager's hands and, uh, and you're, you're eliminating uh, a possible change that a manager could make and – you know, I'm I'm not for change for for change's sake, and I, I'm it'll play out, and baseball will be baseball. But I'm just I've just been so against the rule, just because I you know National League's baseball is fun because there's just more going on, and a manager has more impact on the game, and now you're gonna see that even take a step back, and so you know for, I think my role kind of in baseball was. Uh, a thing of the past anyway, because there's so much talent in the bullpens coming up anyway, that my, my job was kind of fading away. But, uh, this is just kind of like the, the death rattle for the, for the loogie. And it's a RIP for me. <laughs> did, did you look to, to alter your repertoire at all because of that? I, I talked to, to Daniel Zamora in spring training and he said he was trying to, to work on a change up a little bit more. Uh, like, did you go about in the off season saying, okay, maybe I'll bring this pitch back a little bit more or use it a little differently than I had in the past? Um, no, I just, uh, like I was just able to focus on making sure that I could do what I needed to do against righties. Um, you know, for my job for the last five, six years, yeah, five years before with the Mets and then one with the Braves was basically just to get the big lefty out. And so I knew every day, even in the off season, what my role was. And so I focused on just that. 
and if, if I was facing a big righty in a situation, the odds are that it wasn't um, in a meaningful spot in the game. So I would just kind of, you know, manage how I was pitching to them. But in this offseason, I just focused on being able to, to, to do what I think needs to be done to get righties out too. So it's just a matter of, of knowing what your job's going to be and attacking it that way in the offseason and, and moving forward. Back to the Mets, Jerry. You got a favorite moment in your time uh, wearing the orange and blue? Gosh, I have so many. I, I, I'm so fond of my time in, in New York and playing for the Mets. Um, a favorite moment, it's hard not to think about Bartolo's home run. Honestly, it's really hard. <laughs> you know, it's such a weird thing. But I think I think a, a favorite moment of mine probably uh, would have to be, uh, gosh, uh, probably just getting to the World Series and, and, and having that amazing run, even though I wasn't you know, physically a part of it because of the injury. I think just you know, being a part of that kind of energy and being that late and having the chance to, to win the commissioner's trophy – uh, it's something special. Uh, not many guys get to do it, um, and we were right there. Um, and so I think if uh, if I had to single out a moment, I think that was it. Just playing, just being in the World Series. And then I, I wanted to ask, you know, you you were teammates the second half of 2018 with Jeff McNeil, and then you saw Pete Alonso from afar last year. Well, what's it been like to see those two guys come up and and contribute? at the major league level, the way they have right away for the Mets, kind of what was it like to prepare for, for New York's offense last year with those two guys as central parts of it? Yeah, it's, it's definitely different. Um, from a, from a fan perspective, I really love what Jeff McNeil brings to the plate. Uh, I think his versatility in the, in the field is one thing, but the way he his bat to ball skills is kind of a throwback to, to uh, a generation's gone, uh, his ability to, to not strike out and just put the ball in play and put pressure on the defense. And I think it's, I think it's a wave and I hope it's a wave of, of the future of things to come with, with guys that are just good at hitting the ball, you know, not necessarily home runs, but guys that could just put the wood on the, on the ball. Um, and Alonzo, that run last year was, was something special. I mean, you get 50 home runs in any season. Uh, it's it's incredible. I've never seen it personally. I've never been on a team that, that had one. I remember when 30 was really special. Uh, but to, to watch a guy do it with 50 and to watch him truly embrace, you know, the city of New York and, and, and what it means to play in that city. Uh, even this spring, I saw him do something for a fan that's going through some medical. <laughs> Sorry, I had a little interruption for my, my boy just got out of the shower. Uh, or a bath. He's too young. But uh, you know, watching watching Pete, <laughs> watching Pete, you know, embrace what it means to to be a big league ba- baseball player and really reach out to fans the way he's he's done. Uh, it's a testament to to his parents, to the people around him, and the organization that that brought him up with the Mets. Um, they created something uh, something special moving forward. And with those two guys in the lineup at all times, they're they're always going to be dangerous. Oh, Jerry, we uh, we miss you in New York, and we wish you the best of luck uh, with the San Francisco Giants when, uh, hopefully, when everything starts up again. Uh, stay loose at that dog bed and the brick wall out there in Arizona. <laughs> stay safe, healthy, uh, you and your family, and, and we really appreciate the time tonight. Thank you so much, Jerry. All right. Thank you, Pete. Thank you, Tim. Uh, you guys stay healthy, and uh, best of luck. I appreciate you guys having me on. Thanks, Jerry. And we'll pour one out for your, your Dayton Flyers basketball team that, uh, that didn't oh, get its chance in even... March Madness, man. Uh, man, what an opportunity lost. Uh, I think that would have been amazing for the, for the university. And, uh, I think, 
it would have put us on another level. But uh, you know, there's there's bigger things that that have gone away. But uh, yeah, thank you for for pouring one out. I, I do it on a regular basis. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks again, Jerry. I'm gonna have a chance to catch up with Jerry Blevins. Uh, such a key part of that Mets bullpen. Uh, for many years coming out through the left side. And uh, Terry Collins fell in love with him at times. He racked up the appearances uh, over the course of the 2016 and 17 seasons in particular. But, uh, Tim, tournaments have been canceled, leagues suspended, and there hasn't been a live game on TV for what feels like a year. And, uh, yeah, we're we're feeling all that, even though it's barely been more than a week right now. And there's no better reminder of how important sports are to our lives than to take them away completely now, one of the good things here, The Athletic is still home to 400 of the best sports writers out there, and in these very strange, uncertain times, they're still hard at work doing excellent reporting and telling unique, engaging, informative stories. Reporters like you, Tim. You know, I read a story this week about Brazilian soccer legend Ronaldinho being in a Paraguayan jail right now. Uh, I read about how the situation between Todd Gurley and the Rams was beyond repair because that release caught me off guard and I need to plan for my fantasy football season since that's the only thing that's, that's operating as usual. Or how, you know, I read about minor league baseball players getting financial support from their big league counterparts. And also, since I, I regularly reread my own work, I read about how Jacob deGrom was unearthed by Mets scouts, how why they believed in Pete Alonso when other teams didn't, or more recently, why Andres Jimenez had the best spring training in Mets camp. Yeah, uh, and there's a lot. Tim's always writing, and I, I read a story about Babe Ruth, and if he had the Spanish flu and it turned into a story about a, a sports writer who was covering the Red Sox back then who succumbed uh, to that epidemic a, a century ago. So look, there's always terrific stuff from The Athletic, and it can help keep you connected to the teams, the athletes, the sports you love. So sign up now. See for yourself the creativity, reporting, and storytelling that sets The Athletic apart. Go to theathletic.com slash LGM. You could receive 40% off an annual subscription. Games aren't being played right now, but the stories that draws all the sports, those don't go away. So again, go to theathletic.com slash LGM for 40% off an annual subscription, and we will see you there. Uh, next episode coming up later this week, Friday morning, number 66. Two players in Mets history, Tim, have worn 66. Josh Edgen and Ty Kelly. Who you got? I mean, it does feel a little fitting to go with Ty Kelly because we did talk a lot about the 2016 Mets, uh, and he still remains the last Met to get a hit in the postseason. But, you know, we've looked at some years here for different guys, and, and 1966 was the first year as a Met for a, a guy we, we didn't honor when his number came around the first time, uh, a guy who... I think it's overlooked sometimes when we talk about those early Mets teams. The guy was really a central component of their two pennant winning teams, made a couple of all-star teams. Uh, the man behind the plate for those teams in Jerry Grody, who made his first Mets appearance in 1966. Yeah, came over to trade uh, with the Astros for Tom Parsons and uh, such a, a key part, some will argue, if you're talking about all-time Mets and all-time lineups, we went through this exercise in the last podcast, and we'll argue for Jerry Grody over the likes of Mike Piazza or Gary Carter, and that might be some some high praise, but was that important a piece for what the Mets were able to accomplish in 69 as they started to, to turn the tanker around in 1966, their first season 
losing under 100 games, which was a big accomplishment uh, at the time. So we'll have the Jerry Grody edition of the Metrospective coming up next time. This is the end of the Robert Gesellman uh, edition for Tim Britton. I'm Pete McCarthy, and uh, we appreciate you joining. A big thanks to our buddy Jerry Blevin. Yeah, awesome to have Jerry on. Adios, Pete.